0: This is a Sunday talk by Todd Corbett titled How Suffering Gets Us to the Truth. Recorded December 11, 2005, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning, I wanted to talk a little bit about how suffering gets us to the truth. Suffering and struggle are the fuel. For the spiritual path it's just what gets us to the path we were having a lot of fun everything was rosy we were happy just blissful all the time it probably would never occur to us to get on a spiritual path but most people as they go through their life uh, unless they're magically protected from life They begin to see that everything is dissolving a little bit, coming apart. We find that we struggle almost continually to try to be happy. And what happens is we we fail. We fail to be happy. We think we're happy sometimes. It works pretty good. But then something happens. And we don't understand. We expected things to be a certain way, and they're not. And we're struggling to try to feel better. We struggle to maintain the story of my life. It is the desire to be happy, which always needs to be rekindled. It's the struggle to be spontaneous, to be appropriate. It never satisfies, but we always believe it will. Someday. We want to become enlightened. Someday. Not now. <laughs> Heaven forbid, <laughs> now. We struggle to eventually end the struggle. The pain of it is insidious, and we often don't recognize how unsatisfied we feel. Our problem is one of perspective. We don't appreciate what we have. We don't appreciate it because we feel we must always secure it, obtain it. At times, we may actually glimpse the truth that our struggle is futile. But we can't bear to see this, because what stands on the other side is the unknown. If we weren't struggling, what the heck would we do? Simone Weil, Simone Bay, book that I mentioned earlier, she says, um, We all know that there is no true good here below that everything that appears to be good in this world is finite, limited, and wears out. Every human being has probably had some lucid moments in his life when he has definitely acknowledged to himself that there is no final good here below. But as soon as we have seen this truth, we cover it up with lies. Men feel that there is mortal danger in facing this truth squarely for any length of time. That is true. Such knowledge strikes more surely than a sword. It inflicts a death more frightening than that of the body. After a time, it kills everything within us that constitutes our ego. In order to bear it, we have to love truth more than life itself. Those that do this turn away from the fleeting things of time with all their souls. So we, usually, we are usually unable to turn away from these fleeting things of time, and we continue to struggle. Only a deep insight can break through our habitual spinning. We need to be disillusioned. In Joel's book, he describes how he had all kinds of worldly possessions. I didn't bring his book out here. That was the other book I was going to try to have out here. But anyway, Joel's book, Naked Through the Gate, um, he describes how he had all kinds of worldly possessions. His life was working out, but he felt a certain lack. He wasn't satisfied he launched into his spiritual path to see if there was something more that could give him true, abiding happiness because this path of acquisition and material wealth was not working for him. That's pretty good. Most people don't have such an easy time of it. Um, in order to break out of our habitual spin, we need to really see the pointlessness of our spinning. We need to see that it is terminal. Suppose we have a terminal illness. We realize that we will die very soon despite all treatment. Now what do we do? We can struggle with it, whether to have chemotherapy or some more holistic treatment, but in the end we can clearly see that we are dying. It's beyond hope. Now what? The mind hopes, but then it sees again it's over. We are trapped. Being trapped is not a bad thing. The mind thinks it's horrible, but it's really not. Now our attention is sort of fastened down. We don't have very far to go. We can't get away from our circumstance. If we are able to pay attention, there is nothing to achieve. So what do we do? The short life that we have left is all we have. Rather than struggle to cling to some fantasy, we face our life as it is. It's like there's no question anymore. We're not going to get anything. We're not going to resolve anything. So we stop trying. What is there to struggle about? Nothing. Nothing. Our usual reified goals tend to prevent us from seeing what is actually here. We run and spin in pursuit of an imaginary life that we hope to reach someday. But when we are confronted with imminent death, all frivolous grasping loses meaning. Now, as a nurse, I've seen many, many people come into the intensive care unit, dying, struggling right to the very end. It doesn't happen all the time, but when it happens, it's stunning. It's amazing. When a person knows that they are dying, has known for some time that they are dying, yet they don't know. Otherwise, they wouldn't struggle. So with a clear and stable attention, we're able to see this struggle happening. But if we don't have that, we can't see clearly. If our attention is wavering all over the place, We can't see that we're struggling. So we continue to struggle. So without hope, there is this natural underlying warmth, love. As soon as the spinning stops, we can appreciate what's here. We weren't even able to see it before because we were so busy running to the next thing to try to figure out the next thing that's going to make us happy. Hope is pretense. Hope is expectation. It is our expectation that keeps us spinning and struggling, always wanting. We can never appreciate what is here now. Well, we don't realize it generally, but we already have this terminal illness. It's called life. (laughs) Now, we think we have a lot of time left. You know, even if we're young, we think we have a lot of time. But we don't. In more ways than we realize. We don't have time. If you look back at your life, 30 years or so, if you can find an event, say the day that you got married or the day that you got divorced, (laughs) some big event, and you look, where is the time that passed between then and now? It's a blink. It is the same amount of time that will exist between now and your death. It's a blink. We think we have time. We don't. We don't have time. So, the other point about illness and death, is that when it comes and we're in pain, we're distressed, that's not a good time to cultivate mindfulness, to cultivate attention. It's harder when we are distracted by all of these events. So the time to practice and to develop a stable, abiding attention is now. Begin now. Don't wait. Generally, we like to think we have lots of time, you see, and that's the problem. That's where we get into trouble. And then suddenly, we're on our deathbed. We're struggling. We're having to take morphine. We can't focus our mind. It's important to do the work now, because then when that time arises, it's not a problem. There is a Buddhist evening prayer that Joel likes to quote on retreats. It really cuts to the heart of this thing. He says, Let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by and opportunity is lost. Each of us should strive to awaken. Awaken. Take heed. Do not squander your life. With death awareness, when we actually recognize that we are going to die soon, we begin to notice death all around us. We begin to see that things are not permanent at all. We realize that everyone we know is going to die. And we begin to recognize impermanence. It becomes... It's depressing at first, because it's everywhere. And, you know, our whole world was built on permanence. The sense that things are somehow solid. We know things are, you know, changing, and we don't really see it, though. We have an intellectual idea about it. We're not getting it, though. Zen master Dogen's had this to say about impermanence and the motivation to do spiritual practice. He said, it depends only on whether one's aspiration is firmly determined or not. He says, a person who arouses true aspiration and studies as hard as his capacity allows will not fail to attain the way. To arouse such an aspiration, think deeply in your heart of the impermanence of the world. It is not a matter of meditating using some provisional method of contemplation. It is not a matter of fabricating in our heads that which does not really exist. Impermanence is truly the reality in front of your eyes. So as we look and we notice that we're going to die and everyone we know is going to die, We have this big cloud of, you know, depression, sorrow. It's kind of a grieving kind of thing. But if we go into that, we don't turn away from it. It's not what we think. It's sad, but sadness in itself, it's not bad. It's not wrong. It actually is a reflection of this world, the truth of this world. If you go into sadness, you come out in joy. It's not what we think. What we begin to see is that who we think we are is actually shifting and changing constantly. Who we thought we were when we got out of bed this morning and then we were having lunch. It's like the feeling, the images, all of it, totally different. We have managed to string them together in some amazing way. And this is how we prevent ourselves from actually seeing the impermanence of what we are, total impermanence of this body-mind manifestation. So, without some deep vision or insight into impermanence, we are bound by our beliefs and our superstitions. We live in superstitions. To have an insight into impermanence though, isn't just to believe that everything passes away. We need to break through the surface story and really see the reality of transience, everywhere, always. Now, many of us have had the experience of losing a loved one. And for many of us, up until that moment there was this sense of permanence but afterwards if we're paying attention if we're capable of paying attention the world starts to unwind for us in the way i was just describing we begin to see that everything is impermanent we start to see that it's like it's like we've broken through the crust of our images and we we start we look at we'll be talking my own experience Immediately after a loved one passed away, for a month afterwards, I'd be talking to people, I could see they were dead. I could see their death eminently. I could see my own death. And it was a it was a real dark period, but it it's like I didn't turn. I don't know why. You know, our instincts tell us that we should turn away from this, you know, get psychological help. But As a nurse, you know, I figured, well, I can deal with this. (laughs) I'm tough. (laughs) But what I found was there is wisdom in this. There's wisdom in hanging out there with the sorrow and just sitting with it, hanging out with it, watching it, gazing at it. We begin to see that it is not what we think. So the death of a loved one can be a blessing in dark disguise. Our heart is broken. Our world is shredded. Our loved one seems to have gone beyond form. And we have gained some understanding of impermanence. We look around and we see a world on fire. It's all going, all of it dissolving away. (laughs) (laughs) The more aware of it you become, the more you will see the transience of all phenomena, and with this seeing, the more you are drawn towards the truth. If all of this is just passing, what is here? What is this really? There's something here, but all this stuff is just going, going. It's like it just keeps falling away. Something is left, something that it never changes. Gradually, we begin to experience what impermanence actually is. When the story of impermanence falls away, emptiness is what we find. It is immediate and direct. But you see, it's not emptiness. It's the truth. We call it empty. The Buddhists call it emptiness. I think probably in many spiritual traditions, uh, God would would be a, a suitable substitution. But for the purposes of this talk, I'm going to use this term emptiness because it points to it's a more direct pointing than to call it God. Because to call it God, we get into storyland, we start falling into fantasy and all kinds of ideas about God. What we want to do is we want to meet God directly. We don't want to have some story about God that we're going to meet. In emptiness, there is no impermanence. Impermanence implies there are things that are impermanent. But there are no things in emptiness. You see, we could talk about this till the cows come home. That's not going to help. What it is is when we become aware of impermanence and we let it actually transform us by being willing to see, by by being willing to look. And that's tough, because you see, we're not motivated. We need some big life event, where we need to have a little bit of wisdom like Joel had on his path, where he didn't need to be kicked over and over again by horrible circumstances. He just noticed, oh, I'm not happy. I've got all this stuff. I'm not happy. So he started to look. Emptiness showed itself to him, gracefully. (laughs) So, if we allow ourselves to feel the fear, the dread, the sorrow, the sadness, rather than look away or temper it with nice feelings, good stories, we can allow ourselves to feel what is here. So, for example, fear. When we feel heavy, afflicted emotions such as fear, we usually want them to go away. Um, And that is exactly what we want to be aware of. So fear is arising. We feel the fear. And then there is this sensation that says, I don't like this. We want to be aware of that sensation. We want to be aware of that feeling that wants to push that fear away. And this is true with with all of these negative emotions as they arise. We just sort of, we let them in. We feel our resistance to them. We become aware of the resistance. And in the process of being aware of the resistance, the resistance ceases to be there. Resistance can only exist as resistance when we're resisting it. It's funny. So... What we really need to be doing then, if we haven't done so already, is to develop our attention. And attention training in meditation is not difficult. It starts slowly. It's kind of a process like priming a pump. You pour a little bit of water in the, you know, those old pumps. Pour a little water in, kind of get it started, and then it starts working. And we can pump the water out. Meditation, we have a huge amount of resistance to meditation when we first get started. Unless we have a motivating uh, circumstance, like I have described, if we don't, if you know, if life has been going quite well, but we just feel that kind of unsatisfactoriness, then we just need to form formulate a, a, a meditation practice, and as we do it, it will be like priming a pump. Once we get it started, we will begin to we will begin to have some insights, we'll begin to notice this impermanence. And after we have practiced for a while, we will enjoy the practice. There will be a lot less resistance to it. There is this little thing that happens, though. Even if we see impermanence and we have a tremendous insight into it, the next minute we can find ourselves... Lost in our stories, selfing, and then we'll see that, and we'll go like, oh gosh, how can i how can I be so ignorant? We want to be aware of that. We want to see that that's a thought, it comes up, it's sort of blaming now this is this is the way the mind keeps us spinning. See then we're back into struggle once again, so we just want to keep noticing how the mind wants to keep turning it back under and starting the spin again all we need to do is be aware of the mind when the mind is speaking when it's saying you know when it's when it's judging what we're doing you know here we are selfing we're we're you know telling a little lie we're um you know sneaking around we notice <laughs> We notice we're being, we're being crazy. In light of what we've seen, we've had this insight into the truth, and here we are being an idiot. So it's this funny thing. Right in that moment, if we recognize what the mind is up to, we're back into impermanence and the truth. But if we don't recognize right there, we start spinning. And we'll be spinning again. Yeah, it go on for 20 years. Once it starts, we need attention to come in and see it. And if our attention is weak, if it's wavering all over the place, it's amazing. We can just be lost in our spin. You know, and we, we can't... There's this funny thing that happens... Um, when we get onto the spiritual path, we start blaming the self. We we'll go, well, you know, I've read a lot of stuff, and it's it's a very it's strongly indicated that the self is really the problem. And we can start blaming our self. We can go, well, it's myself. It's the problem here. And we can, you know, we can um, make it into some kind of monster. But it's not. It's It's actually, when we're doing that, that is the self that's having those thoughts. So we can't, we can't really... We find that we can't escape this self. We, if we try to blame it, we're just pretending once again. So all, what we want to do is we want to see that pretense as it's arising. So as we go along, our ignorance then is transforming into wisdom. The more we see the mind, the more we realize what the mind is, and our attention is growing stronger. We stop ignoring reality. It is in seeing our delusions and seeing our suffering within these delusions that propels us inward towards the truth. So now, rather than moving through our stories, going, oh, I don't feel good. I want to feel better. What can I do to feel better? Oh, I know. I'll go and get some really tasty Chinese food or whatever. And you see and, and then we'll find ourselves at the restaurant and then we're done with that and now we don't we've got indigestion and so it's just the, it's, the, it's the endless storyline that moves out horizontally in our life. That is That can never find the truth. Even if we are struggling to find the truth through, you know, meditative contemplation. If we're trying to go, well, okay, um, let's see now. If there's no self, then I'm just pure awareness. I'm just consciousness. You see... Now, that's still going out. That's going to the Chinese restaurant, but with different clothes on.
1: <laughs> See,
0: what it is we want to do is we want to stop going on the horizontal circuit, and we want to sink into our experience that we're having now. So, in, in essence, we're, we want to go... It's the vertical route. We want to sink down. You know, it's kind of analogous to the cross, you know? The crucifixion. We can run the horizontal route in either direction forever, or we can just sink down into what is here. Of course, when you go the vertical route, you're, you're just going to the truth. But that's all there is. This other stuff is just the storyline. So once we get started doing our practices, we start noticing those wonderful and fantastic states of clarity. We want them to stick around. We really like them. They're blissful. But as soon as we have them and we recognize that they are blissful and we like them, we are already struggling. We have already lost it. We may still have the after effect, kind of the afterglow or whatever, but we've already lost it. We're already spinning. We're already selfing. So right there is a great teaching, and it's also a source of tremendous suffering. We can can then spin out for another, you know, 10 years. Or we can notice ah, this bliss, this wonderful, fantastic mind state. It's illusory in the sense that it's passing. We can't have it. We can't get it. We're never going to be able to grasp it. As soon as we want it, we've lost it. So that kind of tempers that stuff, and we kind of relax a little bit. When we're not struggling for it, though, we find it pops right up. It's there a lot. But we don't care now, you see. It's okay that it's there. It's wonderful that it's there. But it's also wonderful when it's gone. Because what's here when it's gone is just as wonderful. We've just created this dichotomy in our minds. Our minds have created this dichotomy. But the truth is, everything is already amazing. We just haven't bothered to notice, or haven't been able to notice because we've been spinning. Spinning in our little struggles. <laughs> and then another related problem to do with formal practice, if people um, are practicing only when they feel like it, you know, if you don't feel good, why, why bother practicing? <laughs> but you see, this is exactly the time to practice. I mean, it's a wonderful thing uh, if you can just do your committed practice daily. So you, you have to commit. You have to decide. Okay, I'm. I can't be attentive. I can't pay attention, and I can't develop this process if I don't commit to something. So I'm going to commit to sitting every day for a half an hour, 15 minutes, however long uh, it seems appropriate for us when we start. So this is a huge step. If we are, if we are always trying to meditate only when we feel good, we're, first of all, we're not going to meditate that much because we don't feel that great <laughs> that often. There's going to be times when we feel really charged up about meditating and we're going to just get right on that cushion and we're going to have great, maybe, great mind state. Maybe (laughs) not. Depends. We're always amazed by what we find. But the whole point, though, is if we allow ourselves to sit with whatever mind we've got, and allow and pay attention to what the, the resistance that's coming up. Just be aware of it. If the mind is all over the place, if it's distracted, you know, you're going off to thought, you just keep noticing and coming back. It goes off to thought, you notice, you come back. You just keep doing this. Now that's wonderful practice because you're having lots of opportunity to see how the mind goes off all by itself you're not doing it, the mind is doing it so the more you see that and you recognize, oh, we're over here now come back to the breath the more you do that, you're actually strengthening mindfulness much more than if your mind is being cooperative and you're sitting on the cushion and it's just hanging with the breath you see that? it's very, very important then to to be with the difficult mind states it's, it all comes back to that. It's just like sitting with sadness or anger. It's the same thing. We, we, if, we, if we don't want to do it, then we're missing a huge part of, of our true life. So um, Simone, again, talks about this a little bit. She says, it is at those moments when we are in a bad mood, when we feel incapable of the elevation of soul that befits holy things, it is then that it is most effectual to turn our eyes towards perfect purity. For it is then that mediocrity comes to the surface of the soul and is in the best position for being burned by contact with the fire. And what is this fire she's talking about? It is the fire of attention we think attention is just some mundane we have we have such we have, our ideas are so limited everything is mundane, but if we actually look at attention, we realize it's powerful it is the it's the most amazing thing we have no idea what it is, but we have this sense of what it is you know this we couch everything in these these two dimensional terms, and we take them to be real. That's how we live with them. We don't actually notice the awesome nature of awareness or anything, everything. The willingness to look at this um, negative. Miserable mind state is the fire. That willingness, that willingness of attention, that is the fire. And of course, it's the resistance to looking that keeps the delusion alive. Oh, also, Simone says in this regard one of the principal truths of Christianity. A truth that goes almost unrecognized today is that looking is what saves us. Looking. Looking meaning attention. So we take up the sitting practice for good reason, to stabilize our attention. It allows us to see how attention habitually distracts. We don't try to fix it. Really, the process of remaining attentive is all we need to do. We sit and thoughts arise and we go back to the breath. That's it. That's really all we need to do. Pay attention. Space opens up when we don't entertain thought. We lose the spin of the mind and space opens. We're no longer creating filler. (laughs) The space is already there. We just fill it up constantly. No longer going out into that horizontal path. We just fall down into the truth. We sink into this moment. And we can relax there. Very relaxing. And when the mind becomes capable of paying attention to its point of meditation, whatever it is, that, that capability of paying attention allows concentration to naturally stabilize. So if, once we get going, like the... Priming the pump. Once we get it going, it's it's awestruck by what it sees. It's very easy to sit. It's very easy to do these practices because it's an adventure. It's no longer something that we need to do because we're miserable. We start. It's sort of like we get over the hump of struggling. You know, having to be beaten to get there. <laughs> Suddenly, we're we're realizing. The richness of, of what this is. And now it's like it becomes easy. It's easy because we realize it's the only thing that's really worth doing. So, and then we have precept practice. In precept practice, uh, it's basically being mindful through the course of the day. And we, we learn how to observe our little self, our little self-images as they arise, pretending to be real. That's me. Um, that's what precepts are good for. We see the same grasping that we see when we're sitting on our pillow. We see selfishness glaringly we begin to see selfishness everywhere this is the funniest thing when you first get going and you break through uh, the initial stages of practice it's disgusting (laughs) you see yourself your selfish um, motivations popping up everywhere you can't get away from it and it is it's disgusting but you see, right there, when that sense of it's disgusting comes up, then we can launch into one of those things I was talking about earlier. Or we can notice, oh, disgust. It's just the mind. It's another, it's another of those stories coming up. It's the mind. And so rather than getting lost in disgust, we can just see it. Oh, okay. We can hang with being disgusted. Feel that. It's not what we think. So, good examples of precept practice are not to steal, not to lie, not to blame. We don't take them on as commandments. At the center, we we have a set of 10 precepts, and they're very useful for, for the purpose of It's like bringing a microscope into our daily life. So it gives us a little frame of reference. <clears throat> for example, if we... Um, the first... Is it the first one? The second Frivolous pursuits. Um, that's the second one, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, to regard each moment as a precious opportunity for spiritual practice. Not to waste time in frivolous pursuits, nor to overindulge in drugs alcohol, or escapist entertainments. So that's a that's a great one. Um, they're all very helpful in this way. Um, so what would happen? We, we, every day when we get off work, we come home, we turn on the television set. We know it's retarded. We've, <laughs> we've been watching this go on for months, and we've been thinking about it, but... When we get home, it's like a sequence of events. Click, and there we are on the couch watching the tube. So we, we decide, OK, this is a frivolous pursuit. I am going to, I'm going to apply the second precept. It's a frivolous pursuit. I'm not going to turn on the television when I get home from work tonight. And you're thinking about it all day. Well, you, you, know, you get home, you're tired. You come in, first thing you do is turn on the television. Now, with attention, if you're paying attention, mindfulness, you're watching this whole thing. You realize you can't do a thing about it in some sense. Otherwise, you wouldn't have turned it on. But you're watching, and you're seeing what the mind is doing. You're seeing how it's justifying it, I'm tired, whatever. Or I don't even know why I'm doing this, I'm just doing it. You see? <laughs> and as you start to look, you will start seeing, you'll start peeling away layers of this silly mind. It just it's just crazy. It, it you know, we, we take it to be who we are. And it's crazy. It, it it's not who we are. It's just the mind. It it you know, we we see it in meditation, it goes off. We we bring it back. We're watching the breath. It goes off again. It's like a little puppy dog. It you know it, it needs to be trained. <clears throat> so next day we we were looking at. We're very we're very distressed that evening. We we couldn't work with it at all. Um, we are noticing all this stuff. We're noticing the distress, the feeling of being a failure. I couldn't even do this practice. I couldn't even. Turned on the television anyway. Thought about it all day long. Well, the next day, now you've you've contemplated, you did your practice in the morning. You come home from work that day. <clears throat> You're not quite as neurotic about it because you can see the neurosis. It's been playing all day. And then when you get home, you just walk in. You look at the television. You walk by. You do something else. Now the mind says, You are so cool. (laughs) You are so attentive. You are really getting this meditation stuff. You're getting the hang of it, man. You're going to be enlightened in no time. Now, if you don't see that, then you're off in the spin again. See how this works? It's crazy. But if you see it, then it's, it's it's just the mind. And you just relax. You know, then, it, you know, eventually it gets to where it doesn't matter if you turn on the television or not. That's just, you know, it's a way to get your attention into the circumstance. What you will find, though, is that the habitual condition tendency to flip that television on will be gone. You know, it may take a few times. You know, this isn't something, it's not like a, you know, it, it fixes it instantly. We take care of these problems. Bang, they're gone. It takes some work. We've got to keep working with attention. It's not like there's a goal here. The process itself is the goal. It's just to be present with what is. So that's what attention is all about. It's being attentive. We're present. So it's all about paying attention to the little images of me that pretend to be doing stuff. Being bad, being good, wanting, needing. We begin to see that our sense of self identity, though it be the source of suffering, is the illuminator of truth. It's what gets us there. It is both the problem and the solution. (laughs) It's amazing. But we need attention. Without attention, not going to happen. And eventually now, with our attention, our mindfulness, we find that we sort of run out of material. We keep doing this and we're really true to ourselves. We begin to see everything arising and passing. We begin to see the mind for what it is thoughts are having thoughts we're not having thoughts thoughts are having thoughts emotions arise we think they're ours but when we watch you see when we pay attention we see that the nature of what's actually happening our stories unravel at some point it dawns that there is really nothing left to do whatever we do is futile right in the process of doing it we see that so we stop trying we don't decide to stop trying it's like trying to stop struggling you know if you try to stop struggling you're struggling you can't you can't decide to stop it happens when you when you realize in your bones You can't do it. You can't fix it. You can't resolve it. So we stop trying. The whole thing just runs out of gas. Our sense of self has lost its energy. We have ceased to care about my life. We're no longer fascinated. And we're no longer demanding that things be some particular way. We're no longer waiting for something to happen. Everything is exactly the way it has to be. Not as a, not as a resignation, but everything is just unfolding out of itself. It becomes clear. When neediness stops the movement out of this moment, stops. We're no longer leaning into that next experience. Our identity has always been this essential sense of neediness grasping and pushing away, demanding that things be a certain way when we can no longer struggle and keep a straight face. We can no longer argue with circumstances. We don't believe in the goal anymore. Our self-identity has no referent. What I mentioned before is true. When we are no longer here, something is here. Something remains. Initially, there is a sense of relief. A huge sense of relief. Bliss. But it is subtle bliss. It's just a kind of Sigh of relief. It's a, a sense of ease about things. Awareness is everything. It's everywhere. There's nothing else. It's all flow. Everything is just dancing. Whatever the mind is thinking is just thought flowing. The fiction of you and your beliefs has become just flow. After all that I've said here, then how do we really see what is here? How do we... It's very strange, because what is here is, is is what we see right now. We have our beliefs, our ideas about what this is, and we hold them as if they are the truth. And they... They skew everything and give us the sense that everything is solid, that there are things, and then we are separate from those things. But if we actually relax, just relax and feel our our self just as we are, our sense of self It's just a window. And as we feel our sensations, we recognize they're not what we think they are. And we begin to see that everything that we are perceiving is arising within us. It's not apart from us. So that's probably everything I should try to Fit in This morning. Are there any questions? Yes, friend.
2: Well, you, you mentioned two dimension. And I wasn't exactly sure what you meant by that, and as opposed to what three or
0: four. Two dimensional just implies it, it has no depth. Uh, when when we see things through the mind, they have no they have no depth. Um, we see, you know, it's like we have. Stories, and then we have reality. The stories are what we take to be real, but the reality has so much depth, and the stories are just so lengthy. that's what I mean. Yes,
3: um, I've heard some great mystics say that when we think we're making a decision, it's actually a delusion that we don't really make decisions. Decisions are just, yeah. They make themselves. Is that...
0: You've heard Joel say that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yes. I've
3: contemplated that a lot, and I've observed it. I can remember floating down the Green River with Nerisha and thinking, well, it, it, it seems like we're about to make a decision about where we're going to camp tonight. It's going to be there or over there. And so I'm like watching the moment that the decision's made. Um, and maybe I'm not actually making a decision, it's just unfolding. But if that's true, then I don't have a decision whether or not I'm going to squander my life. I don't get to decide that if there's really nothing, there's no decisions to be made.
0: Well, yes, that, that is so true. But, you see, our problem is that when we realize that there are no decisions, that we cannot make a decision, that evening prayer really doesn't mean anything to us anymore. It's a very useful thing, though, to realize when we are deluded, we are needing um, things to be a certain way, we, we, make, we believe we are making decisions. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are doing it. And so that gatha then has great meaning for us. We want to actually get behind that gatha and really be motivated to, um, to decide to practice. You see how, I mean, that's, that's the way, that's what we're working through. But in the end, you see, these aren't even our thoughts. We come, but we have to see this directly. We can't know it as an idea. It's not going to help us. So we recognize that thoughts are happening on their own. They're it's happening by itself. And you can't really, you know, we, we think we are actually having some impact on uh-huh. these thoughts. But the whole idea of me having an impact is delusion. Because really there's nobody that's having these thoughts. There's nobody here. There are thoughts arising. You see how it sounds crazy to talk about it, but but then on the other hand, if you if in your own experience when you pay attention, you can see this. It's true. I mean, well, when you when you're sitting in meditation, and your mind starts going off, or you're driving down the road, and your mind is just thinking in a way about you know suddenly you find yourself, you know, in the Bahamas or somewhere. <laughs> And yet, you're just driving down the road. The mind is doing this. Now, are you consciously doing it? Well, you could sometimes say that you are. I've decided I'm going to have a fantasy. Often, though, they're just happening.
3: I've had a number of people ask me about relationship difficulties because they know that, that i had a major one happen once where I did the very thing you would expect me not to do. I behaved in ways that would be the opposite of what most people would act. And they said, how did you do that? I mean, how did you proceed without ill will and no jealousy? And I said, well, I, I just saw clearly. You know, I just saw <laughs> what was really true. And so it seems that when you when you see clearly, when that opens up, oh, then it's not as though you make a decision, but it's just obvious. You know, they just, That's well, right. of course.
0: But it isn't you doing it. When we think that we are having the experience, see, that's where the delusion lies. Because we're not having the experience. Because the "we," the the referent to that "we" or to that "me,"
3: so is, it's, doesn't it's, exist. it's not me seeing clearly. It's um, mm-hmm. is <laughs> seeing seeing itself or the
0: seeing is awareness, happening. Yeah. Awareness is happening. Yeah. Thoughts.
3: Awareness aware of itself. Right.
0: Exactly. Awareness is. Is dancing. At some point on the path, you realize you can't figure this out. You're never going to understand it. And when you stop trying to understand it, then there is a clarity. It's like, it's just what I was talking about, this business of wanting, of struggling, of trying to reach an understanding. This is struggle. And it's only when we realize we can't do it that it stops, it just stops, and when it stops, there is this what you were just describing this clarity, this stillness, openness. And you will see thoughts are arising and passing away. You will see that, that it, the whole thing is arising within you, your friends are in you, it's all happening within your own consciousness there isn't there is no it body it's
3: not my consciousness
0: well you see but let's talk about it as your you know you realize that there is only one consciousness and it is you your consciousness that that feeling that you have my consciousness mm-hmm. well that's that's pointing to this reality there's only one and that's that's you see if we have the delusion of self then what we need to do is look at what that self is, and as we go out, we keep going and unfolding, unfolding, and the whole world is in that. It's like it doesn't stop with our story. <clears throat> our story is the mask, and as we open it, it just keeps opening out, 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 out. When we're talking to our friend, all of the feelings that we have about who they are, that's all you. That's all happening in you. It's not... It's not from you we think it's this person over here you know we're looking out through these little peepholes at a person over here but that's not your experience when you pay attention closely you begin to see it's all just arising in consciousness any other questions yes Viv. um i just
2: wanted to stand this question of um uh making a decision kind of upside down on its head for a minute. and um, I deal with people sometimes who have a a symptom that uh, one term for it is irresolute and it, that refers to a chronic inability to make decisions. And I had a great example in my own life. I was married previously to a woman who actually was a strict practitioner in particular tradition, Uh, but when we would go out to a restaurant, it was always an agonizing experience (laughs) at at the menu stage, you know, because the the poor, I had such compassion for our servers, you know, our weighty would come over time and again, and my wife would sit there for just long, 10, 15 minutes sometimes, unable to make a selection. Now, is that just, that's kind of the reverse of this idea of well, I've made decisions. But is it really just the same? It, is it because the ego's kind of running back and forth real fast?
0: This is struggle. This is what struggle is, only it's it's manifests outwardly. You know, a lot of times we're able to kind of keep it all together and cool on the outside, <laughs> but inside it's like, it's going crazy in there. Um, but it manifests outwardly uh, a lot of times in all kinds of crazy activity, <clears throat> and being indecisive is just you know attention is 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 all over the place it's not it's not able to relax, so there's a certain amount of hyper energy going on, and there's just spinning so yeah that's just the expression of consciousness for in that in that moment for that individual it's uh... <laughs> Are you looking for an answer, like yeah. how to resolve that?
2: <laughs> it's, it's, it's tied up with, yeah. the, with the mental construction that goes into the future, the supposed future, and says, but if I do it this way, then it would be this, but if I do it that it, you way. Know, it's all this, this getting caught up in, in what the consequences are going to be if I finally make <clears> this <throat> decision.
0: See, now that's actually what everyone is doing. This is just a more magnified version of that.
2: The, the way to cut through that, I mean, I don't know about your ex-wife, but if you find yourself being resolute, wondering what the consequences are going to be if you make this decision or that decision, and if you paid attention to Todd, you know what the consequences are. You're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> when you get the
3: you're going the swing, it doesn't matter.
1: <laughs> and it cuts through that. It just cuts right
0: through that. Then, then, then... Or where consciousness becomes free again. It doesn't care, and so it just gets the lamb curry or the squid. It doesn't matter. That's what Woody
2: Allen means when he says, I'm dying here. <laughs> <laughs> you could look at that
3: whole thing another way, too. Maybe the problem isn't what shall I order, but... What shall I give up? Because
4: I want it all. (laughs) Wesley. Well, it seems to me we've been walking the border between the relative and the absolute here. Mm -hmm. And trying to, you know, take a step on one side and then a step on the other. Now, when I meditate and I'm uh, I'm I'm quiet, and a thought arises, I didn't bring the thought, but a thought comes up. And then a short time later, I say to myself, Oh... You know, it's almost, it's almost a quote from Joel. Oh, I'm distracted. I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch, which is what Joel apparently always thinks about
3: Hawaii <laughs> 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 I'm thinking
4: about something here, I'm going to go back to, you know, just being quiet or silence or the breath, whatever. Now that's that's kind of a relative story, and that's the way I usually tell it. Is there a is there a way from the other side of the boundary to talk about that?
0: Um, not sure. I'm following Imagine your question.
4: Well, I mean, I mean, from the other side, you could say. Um, the that the thought arose and then I got lost in thought about lunch and then the thought arose, oh, and the thought of an I arose. I'm I'm supposed to be meditating, I'm gonna go back to the breath. Um and you would and I guess you could be recognizing. I mean all those things were just arising.
0: I see. Okay. So so in the process of meditating, when we are usually meditating in the early you know it's hard to talk about this because the path is kind of stage specific, but let's say at the beginning, we're meditating and our mind is off and then we come back to the breath and we're we're noticing, oh, I was thinking back to the breath. Then later on in the path, uh, towards the end of the path maybe, we, we notice thought go off. It's not a problem we don 't actually need to go back to the breath. we can just attention is just going to be attentive to whatever is arising in the mind, and so thought arises um, now if you're doing a, if you're actually wanting to do a breath meditation, you don't want to be vacillating in the middle of it i don 't want to give the wrong impression here but when you're towards the end of the path um, i don 't know from from my own experience. The last few years, I just, I never did any kind of, um, the formal practices pretty much weren't happening. It was mostly just being with stillness. I would just sort of sit with the breath, I would become aware of the space between breath, and then I would just hang out there, and the breath would be
1: moving so
0: yeah and then now now what happens is you begin to notice thought arising and that's cool you don't chase it or follow it it just passes through so it's not like you're really distracted attention is right with the with the um whatever is arising whichever is is most prominent in the field of consciousness so it just kind of follows so it's sort of like this this flowing process just you know, thought arises, sensations. Just like choiceless awareness, same kind of thing. You just let everything flow, and then you just sort of <laughs> let yourself go. You know, the sense of you becomes less prominent in it. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. No? Okay, good. Tom, you. <clears throat> I'm not
1: quite sure how to express this though. But when I'm at work and having this difficulty work I could see I could see things arising about every two or three minutes and the process of watching this it's almost instantaneous how you go from kind of a state of awareness into a story, into an illusion it happened at least for me it seems like when I'm attempting to watch it it happens so fast but I have to be very quick to notice that and I do that once in a while when I'm at work and what happens is I get very distracted from work <laughs> and I start putting the wrong numbers on the computer and all that because I'm watching stuff going on <laughs> <laughs> and then I think well i gotta, I got to stop doing this you know so, I could, so my boss won't fire me and, and especially when I'm dealing with unhappy people or customers that a lot of people come in that are very frustrated and I don't want to reflect their frustrations so I want to be empathetic that gives me a good chance to practice, but then I'm going through the cycle of watching this happen so fast and I'm getting distracted from going through it. you ever notice
0: that? Yes. Yes, and that is... You're describing, actually, you're des- describing a fairly high-level functioning struggle. That is how struggle <laughs> works. But it's a, it's a more highly-developed version of it, so you're much more aware in the process of doing what you're describing But there is this sense of resistance. There's this problem that starts to arise in the midst of it. And I'm not sure that there's really a good answer for you because from my own experience, I would go to work and I would have the same kind of thing. I would just be struggling. And, I mean, I'd go into a patient's room. Where's one... (laughs) shouldn't tell these awful stories. Well, anyway, I go into a patient's room, and he's, and he's got a handful of fecal matter. And I walk in the room, and he's like, and I'm like, ah! So I'm running out of the room. Well, let me tell you, mindfulness just is gone. Goes yeah, to shit. Goes to shit. Exactly, bit. Um... But as we do this, as, as we struggle, you see, what's happening is we're aware of the struggle. There is something in us that is, is noticing all of our struggling. And because we are more attentive, there is, a, there is a kind of a relaxation that is developing. We may not even know it. We may not even realize it's happening. But it's sort of like we're getting the true perspective, which is, no perspective. We're realizing that all of our struggle is in vain. And at some point, I mean now when I go to work I just go to work. It's like I I walk in the door, I put on my little scrub outfit I walk out into into the intensive care unit and the job begins. It's like the role falls into place and now I'm playing the nurse and that's what happens. It's like now it's never anything more than that. It's just playing the nurse at some point because there's nobody doing it. So there's not a problem. Okay, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. Thank you. Thank you.
2: encouragement until he's, you know, used to this, and then you don't have to bother. <laughs> <laughs>